Welcome to the Spirit Lake Wellness Podcast and part one of three on challenges to navigating healthcare. Hi, I'm Sandy Tierney. I live in Madison, Wisconsin. Um, I have a 17 and a half year old daughter with cerebral palsy. And so I've become very involved in the disability community, trying to represent the family perspective and that of, we call ourselves those with lived experiences. Um, I went through a training program at the Weissman Center at the University of Wisconsin um, called Leadership Education and Neurodevelopmental and Related Disabilities or LEND. And so now I work for that program, helping our trainees who are from a variety of disciplines um, that work with folks with individuals with disabilities, learn about the family perspective. Um, I also work with Gillette Children's Hospital up in St. Paul, uh, again, presenting the family experience on a research study and then also on what we're calling the Family Engagement Research Blueprint Team. So helping them design how they're gonna engage those with lived experience, particularly family members, um, in all the research that they do. And then I'm doing some work with that at the American Family Children's Hospital here in Madison um, in a project called Caregiver Stories, where we are interviewing um, typically parents of children in the complex care system about their experiences. Hi, I'm Dr. Ewing. I uh, do addiction medicine. And this is my colleague, Tom. Hello, Tom Hayes. I'm a, a psychologist, work a lot with addiction run a string of eight outpatient mental health and addiction clinics, uh, mostly throughout rural Wisconsin with some, some presence in Madison now. Um, and we do a lot of DBT, dialectical behavior training seminars now, and we are doing training in the Wisconsin correctional system for juvenile justice and the Georgia Correctional System for Juvenile Justice, uh, setting up uh, programs that ultimately uh, can change uh, the course of uh, youth's lives into a productive direction. So uh, excited about today, just because I'm so used to navigating uh, our uh, the, the various hurdles and layers of bureaucracy in, in our healthcare system, and can't wait to hear how the perspective from other places. Cool. Uh, I'm Adam Tierney, um, Dr. Tierney again. I, I'm a urologist here in Madison. I went to undergrad med school residency. So I'm, I'm uh, in addition to being a doctor, I'm a hardcore Madisonian. Um, married to Sandy, uh, married to Sandy. And I practice at SSM Health, um, do surgeries at St. Mary's. My specialty is involved in you know, primary surgical treatment of you know people's acute problems like their uh, urinary issues or bladder cancer or prostate cancer. Um, but outside of uh, you know, outside of that, and you know, starting about two years ago, I, I wouldn't necessarily say, like, certainly say burnout, but we were being you know, just inundated with you know all the <laughs> patients that uh, came from three of my five partners leaving the practice within nine months. And so there's two of us, you know, taking on a huge load. And then this was the, during the middle of COVID. And when I saw the end of that come, when I saw the end of, you know, the COVID crisis uh, getting better, I said, you know what, I'm going to make a little bit of change, not a huge change, but I'm going to take a day off a week. And the day off a week was uh, with the intent of doing not golf or binge watching Netflix, but <laughs> although <laughs> I, I've done a couple of those too, but um, 
more trying to get out into community. I see what, you know, what Sandy does with the community and I used to be, I think more involved. So I started doing volunteer work uh, with the specialty care free clinic, which it used to be called, oh, I can't remember what it's called. What was it? It Benevolent Specialist. Yeah, yeah, we we got rid of that name. Benevolent Specialist Clinic has been around for a long time, uh, but it's where uh, specialists, dermatologists to urologists to physical therapists um, go to a uh, a clinic for people without insurance um, and provide care there. So um, that's I, I do that you know, once or twice a month. And then on Wednesdays, my seven-year-old golden doodle and I go to a Grace Hospice Center and do uh, pet visits. Hey, we got him uh, uh, registered as a, a pet therapy animal. And so he and I uh, really enjoy going and seeing the folks at a Grace Hospice Center for an hour or two a week. Um, in addition to that, I'm, you know, dad and hopefully a decent neighbor. And those are, that's what, that's what I do. <laughs> So yeah, it's interesting the way that the healthcare system has evolved. It seems like there's more bureaucracy, more paperwork, um, and it it almost seems that the object is to produce documentation and fill out forms uh, way more than actually taking care of people. Um, and I don't see any end in sight. But yeah, well, go ahead. I was going to say, yeah, there's there's a kind of a famous graph. It's now old. It's you know maybe eight or ten years old, where they they plot the rise in the number of physicians, you know, in, in the United States, and then they pl- plot the rise of hospital administrators. And well, there's a, either a steady line or fairly steady state of physicians and advanced practitioners taking up part of that. The rate of um, administrative growth from you know eighty three to I think it was two thousand three was uh, exponential. And so, yeah, that brings to mind that it wasn't, it's, you know, it's easy to blame the administrators, but it may be a symptom of, you know, something, something larger we can, we can talk about too, rather than the administrators causing the problem. The fact that there are so many may be a sign of something deeper. Why, why do we feel the need to even do all this paperwork? What's behind that? So one of the things that we run into, uh, Sandy might be able to address this, is um, when a family has a child that is disabled, uh, it's almost like it it uh, causes a certain amount of disability to the whole family. It uh, occupies uh, almost the entire family resources, and very often that's not enough. Um, how do people navigate that? <laughs> um that really varies a lot on what connections and resources they have access to. Um, yeah, I mean, I think depending on when you find out that your child has a disability or is at least not developing as expected and who refers you to what and how all that happens. So it's very variable based on different family situations. And I think that's one of the things that I keep getting frustrated with is it shouldn't be that it matters who you know or who you are. It should be across the board. Um, so yeah, a lot of the family navigation pieces happen. I learn a lot from other families. Um, 
you know, one of the places I learn the most is actually in a waiting room <laughs> with another family where you strike up a conversation and you learn something. Um, I think it's because, you know, as physicians are getting, or all different kinds of providers, OTPT speech, everybody is getting more pushed to do paperwork. They're having less time to spend actually educating families on things that could be helpful to them. And often they're not, not educated about that to start with. And that's part of what our program is about. The LEND program is helping the trainees that go through it learn about the resources. And so I always talk to them about now that you know the resources, you kind of have an obligation to make sure that the families you work with are aware of them so that they can access them. So that's kind of segues into accessing care. Adam, I'm curious about um, what your experiences have been in various places that you've traveled to deliver care. Well, I just got back from Guatemala last week on a, a trip with 23 other healthcare providers and interpreters and uh, even a chaplain went with us and we went to rural Guatemala to do surgeries there. There was an ENT doctor, myself, and a, a general surgeon from Southern Wisconsin. And um, they th these are trips that are done twice a year by this group. And so the people know we're coming, the hospital knows we're coming and the way they access, we're tr primarily treating people who have uh, almost zero access to surgical care and specialty care otherwise. Uh, it's you know, the infrastructure for medicine is, is fairly poor in rural Guatemala and their technology is nothing like ours. So what I saw for access was um, there was actually uh, community leaders, volunteers who would kind of know that we were coming and um, scour <laughs> um doctor's offices in rural Ecuador, or rural guatemala and other areas to come up with patients and then one of these leaders would actually bring four or five of them with them like on buses or in a car we're talking public buses not not rented buses they, and get them and sometimes traveling seven to ten hours uh to meet us when we get there on sunday and essentially there's a clinic full of the outside of the hospital is just filled with i don't know like 180 200 people we start clinic in the morning and we do clinic all day the three of us until there's nobody left and yeah the stories from these people are you know i live in you know i, I do hard labor out in the sun or i do or i'm disabled or but they are they're coming sometimes from local like 35 40 minutes away but sometimes they traveled seven to ten hours um so that's that's kind of an extreme of access that that i've seen you know, to specialty care, and then you, then I go to kind of a step, maybe improve from there would be the the uh, specialty care free clinic in Madison, where they're these patients are referred um, by usually local subsidized clinics or free clinics, Beloit, Madison, surrounding area, and they come in with a referral. They've seen somebody, they've had a uh, a workup of some sort, so they've already been able to access the healthcare system. Um, but even then, there's an 80 to 90% of them are primarily Spanish speaking. So I get, to, and then I go to my clinic in Madison, you know, a private clinic with SSM and see the opposite. Every, almost everybody I see there either has, I mean, like 99% has insurance, um, maybe more than 99%, either insurance, whether it's Badger Care or Medicaid, but primarily um, yeah, private health insurance. So I get to see, I've seen internationally and, and even locally, the difference in access to healthcare and it's, it's stark. Um, 
what I don't see, I only see the people in front of me. So that's all I know. I don't know how many other people are out there with, with unmet needs, but yeah, it is quite a stark contrast, even within the same city. So something I'm curious about is um, how do people cope with their illnesses out in some of these rural areas compared to the emotional impact or stress management strategies that people might use uh, here in the States? I mean, I guess in a word with grace, it's amazing. <laughs> um, they'll, you know, they'll work, you know, within a field with a catheter for six or seven months, eight months, just waiting and hoping that they're going to have a surgery someday. It's kind of life goes on and, you know, God will take care of us and, you know, things like that. So I'm, you know, one way that they don't deal very well it, because they don't have any choice. But on the other hand, it's just amazing um, how they do cope, usually with just family support and local community support or just pure grit or or acceptance maybe um i'm not sure what it is but they this if you take the standard person like me let's say i let's say i went into acute urinary retention and couldn't pee and i had to go into an emergency room and have to have a catheter for me that might seem <laughs> pretty horrible like life is ending or or somebody has erectile dysfunction and oh my gosh uh, you know the i mean not to minimize these problems because they, they are real and cause suffering but when you contrast with you know the the other flip side of the coin of people who have healthcare and access and are have a certain level of expectation of what their own health and life and things like that are supposed to look like and take it to somebody who's you know, got access to nothing it's um it's very it's very different the word coping is very different um they cope in an entirely different way i would say how how would i say that i'd say that it's here we we cope by trying to find the best specialist and the best person that we can get into. There, it's how am I going to get through today and tomorrow? It's much more here and present coping. So I'm kind of curious about what would the number one thing we might be able to do here for patients to decrease the amount of stress they experience from illnesses. I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on that, Sandy, or or does that for me or? <laughs> or Tom, <laughs> I'm gonna have to think about that. The number, like, so the number. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. I was just like, it just strikes me as there's different expectations, and so when your expectations aren't met, it's easier to it's easy to be frustrated and not cope as well. But if your expectations are completely different because your context is different, you might have different expectations. Um, so I don't think that means that trying to think like, it's just, it's such a different experience. How does, how do we translate it here without being like, oh, consider yourself lucky to have anything you have. I mean, that's not really necessarily helpful either. Um, but you do want more, you do want what's best, but how do you be not necessarily satisfied with not getting it? Because if it exists, wouldn't you want it? Right. If it existed in Guatemala, wouldn't they want it too? It just doesn't exist. So maybe it's more being realistic about what you're in a way or weird way. They're more realistic because they don't have more opportunities. Yeah, I, I, th I think your um, <clears throat> characterization that they respond with grace 
you know, and it brings to mind the whole idea of uh, gratitude, that, that it's, uh, it's a minor miracle that after six or seven months with a catheter, now I'm finally able to get, uh, to, to, to get something. And when you mentioned expectations, I mean, it's so true. Uh, I expect to struggle through today and tomorrow versus I expect to have whatever I need at my fingertips. Um, I, I know when we tend to move hell on earth to try to work somebody in with the folks that, that may need specialized care, and it may take four or six weeks before we can make all the arrangements, uh, oftentimes it's clearing hurdles that are put in place by payors like the government or like uh, uh, private health insurance. And then when we, 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 we've moved, oftentimes, you know, adding the services that are needed without getting paid for it, uh, oftentimes we don't get met with gratitude. There's, there's almost anger, hostility for how come this took so long. Um, and, and I think it actually decreases the willingness of providers to bend over backwards, put in extra hours and extra time. Yet uh, the, the patient themselves has been um, led to, to, to expect that, wow, you know, you watch TV commercials or something, you know, we've got the best and it's going to be right there for you. Uh, whereas it seems, this is the cynical part of me speaking, it seems the only thing they might be right there for is to collect the, uh, collect the premium or to collect the taxes uh, that pay for it. And then, um, Oftentimes, um, there isn't that, you know, you almost have to overcome uh, that the, the sense of victim, the, the victim stance that you made me wait um, in, in, in order to, you know, settle somebody into care. And just about the time you're about willing to give up and just say, fine, we'll just, you know, we'll just mail it in. Then you have these tremendously grateful people that walk through the door and are appreciative for everything they get. So, um, you know, I think we're talking about a very difficult uh, topic here in America because we're so, we're just so darn affluent that it does lead to those expectations. Um, <clears throat> and it, it's hard to really uh, quantify uh, what those hurdles are for uh, folks that, um, that have been led to expect what they've been promised. Yeah, I also think with, you know, our daughter's had a bunch of orthopedic surgeries and I've always been surprised at how every time they're like, we're going to try to make sure you have no pain. And I don't know, I've always kind of approached it as, you know, they're cutting through your femurs, you know, <laughs> they're doing big stuff. There will be pain. It would be weird to not have any pain. Let's talk about pain management versus pain eradication. And I wonder if sort of that whole push that we've had for got a headache, take two Tylenol, got this, got that. Everything has a solution. Everything has a quick fix. You should not feel discomfort. You should not feel pain. Um, I mean, they, I just remember with one of her surgeries, they came out of it partway through and the anesthesiologist was apologizing to me that he couldn't get um, an epidural into her back because she had issue from another surgery. And he's like, I am so sorry, I couldn't do that. We will find another way to manage her pain. I mean, he was more 
visibly upset by that than I was. I was like, okay, well, we'll figure it out as we go, you know? And it just, it just struck me as how much there's this push for no one should ever experience anything uncomfortable. And so if you go with that, of course, we're not going to want to wait to get healthcare. We're going to want to, we want it now because we've been told we shouldn't have any discomfort and waiting can be another form of discomfort, even if what we're waiting for isn't causing us pain or a lot of discomfort. It's more like psychological, like I just want to get this checked out kind of thing. So Adam, you had mentioned that a lot of community leaders would go out and uh, identify the patients and help them get to where you were. Um, and in terms of suffering, I'm wondering if in rural Guatemala, there might have been a greater sense of community uh, because of the lack of affluence than we might have here in the U.S. There maybe I, I can't, you know, I'm, I don't want to dip into starting to become anything that sounds like an expert on how, you know, Guatemalan's social life or, or sociology is. I'm, I'm really, I'm, I can't really speak to that. But what I, I can see, you know, the, these community leaders would not just accompany the people to the hospital, but they would sometimes bring their closest family member. The community leaders would stay at them with, you know, at them. At, with, these aren't outpatient surgery. They were there for two, three, four days. They would stay there with them and then make sure they got back to their home communities, you know, seven or eight hours. They would spend two or three days uh, getting them back home and they, they were volunteers. So there's got to be, you know, a different sense of community because I can't think of an equivalent um, thing that we do here. Guatemala is about the same size as Wisconsin, roughly. <clears throat> I can't think of anybody in Wisconsin that, that does something like that as a, as a navigator. Um, but I, yeah, I do like what Tom and you know Sandy were saying about. I really think expectations probably are the in, in the cause of <laughs> pretty much everybody suffering. Um, what what I guess the Guatemala and if some if you say you don't you don't have if you have low expectations, most people kind of chuckle and you think of the old SNL skit or or think you you've just given up or phoned it in. But there's a huge difference between having high expectations, which can cause a lot of suffering, which I think is what we do here, and having uh, faith and hope and uh, trust, um, that can still give you reason to, to have a hope for something without an expectation. So I think we've, we are very expectation. And I think part of that in the healthcare system is, you know, once we monetized everything, once we you know, give a CPT code and an ICDN code to everything and widgetized everything we do and then monetized on it, you know, medicine became more transactional where it used to be, you know, the, the main business of healthcare was trust, <laughs> trust and faith and, and hope. And and I think now that there's money being exchanged, like, like Tom was saying, somebody collecting their premium or whatever, or when I went to the hospital to have a hernia surgery earlier this year, before I even had the surgery, they asked for like $2,500 up front because that's the co-insurance. Once you have that transactional state, you start to maybe conflate that with other things like, I don't know, buying a car or getting weighted on at a restaurant where you do have these expectations because I gave you money. And your original question, I think, John, was, you know, what what's the one thing we could do to change it? That's... I'm like, oh yeah. How do you how do you change a, a culture of uh, people with high expectations? I, I don't. I I have no idea. But I think one start could be, you know, 
destroying this monetization of, of every little thing we do. And that gets back to the original, why do we document so much? You know, half of it's out of fear of being sued by these people with high expectations that aren't being met. And the other half is worried about making it look like you have fraud because you're you're billing for a service and you got to document you did it. So getting away from getting more towards a nationalized health system, I think would do a big service to a lot of that expectation where people would still have hope and faith in their system, but just not these un, unrealistic expectations that are possibly set by um, as an anchoring of this is how much I paid to have this. You know, I'm paying $1,500 a month for my health insurance. Yeah, I, I do kind of expect something. So anyway, that kind of so, long-winded take on it. But I think if you had going to more, not a point, taking money from people at a point, whether it's out of our taxes or whatever, but having more of a nationalized healthcare system, I think would, would help. Did Guatemala have a national health plan? Mm-hmm. And it was it wasn't enough. That's why we're there. I mean, we if they had a great functioning national health care plan, we wouldn't have to go there. But so it's not perfect. I mean, yeah, I'm not saying it's it would be perfect, but it may change people's approach to their health care. I wonder if now that there's quite a few countries around the world that do have national health plans, there would be a possibility to actually look at what makes them successful, what are the challenges, and then how would that translate to our country, our culture, our expectations, and how could we make that work? Um, because I've heard, and I don't really totally know much about this, but I've heard that some countries, it's sort of like everybody only gets this and that's all there is as an option. And I've heard in other countries, you can purchase additional care if you choose so that everybody gets a base minimum, but only those with more money can get higher. And that there's different ways of doing things. And like you're saying in Guatemala, it wasn't enough, but what made it not enough? Was it, you know, sort of the geography and how rural some areas are and they couldn't get people out there to provide the services? Like what are those factors? And then how can we consider that and design something that might work well in our country, our culture, our systems? My, my understanding is that in England, you're either with the National Health Service or you have, you're on your own and you have your own insurance. Um, and in Australia, uh, there's the National Health Plan that everybody's in, and then you can get the additional services uh, without losing uh, the national benefit. But That's correct. So far, yeah. so far the uh, insurance companies have been putting a great spin on uh, what they call socialized medicine and death panels and oh my gosh. <laughs> I, I, I had heard that in England, when there was a shortage of, of dialysis uh, units that uh, yeah, there were ethics panels that would decide who got dialysis and who didn't. And um, yeah, those are kind of scary things. Uh, but at the same time, even if you have no insurance, uh, even if you're homeless, people show up at the ER and expect grade A number one care, uh, period. And it's, it's, it's amazing, actually. Well, that, that's kind of the uh, strange lunacy. I mean, technically, since the 80s, we've had universal health care in other words ERs 
can't turn somebody away for their inability to pay or, or, or whatnot. But then the second half of it, okay, so how does this get covered? How does it get paid for? Uh, that, that never got resolved. So now, you know, uh, healthcare organizations have to find ways of uh, stealing for Peter to pay Paul. Um, but, but, but I think, you know, one of the things you say, uh, one of the things I think we'd all agree on is there, there's just a dearth of providers and it seems to be getting worse. There's fewer and fewer providers. Uh, I know we're always struggling to, to hire folks and then, uh, either train them or, you know, cross our fingers and hope that they're really good at what they do. Uh, you know, as you mentioned, uh, uh, you lose three colleagues in what was it nine months? Um, that you don't lose all our all, all the clients that go along with that. You don't lose all the patients, and so you know you work more days, you work longer hours. You, you, you try to put that in, and uh, I, I don't hear the the push to increase training. I don't hear the push to expand our our capacity. Um, you know, uh, in our field, there's a lot about, uh, there's a lot of talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion. And if you look at practitioners, uh, psychologists, and um, social workers and whatnot, one of the first things you realize is there are very few men. Are there any initiatives to try to get more men involved? Because it's a pretty important uh, aspect, because uh, I, I don't think it's strange to anybody that males tend to wait longer to get help and therefore they, they, they may have, it's not universally true of course, but they, they may have a more difficult time um, <clears throat> making uh, necessary needed change. So, uh, but you never hear those things. How do we expand our capacity for more healthcare providers? You know, how do we improve the statistical diversity uh, that we should have? Um, uh, those those get those get hidden, um, and then and then you deal with all the different chunks of the pie. This is Medicare. This is Veterans Care. This is Medicaid. This is you know uh, a grant funded. This is uh, a private healthcare funded, and and and. And so you really need a team of people behind the surf, uh, behind the scenes, that can sort through all of that, and and they're geniuses because there's a completely different language. Um, and so you know, I need the I need a better ICD nine code because I know the person was hit by a vehicle, but you didn't specify which kind of vehicle it was. Wait a minute, what does that have to do with you know? Uh, repairing their pelvis well and and we don't know so yeah <laughs> one, of the things, out. one of the things that's happened is that the increased call for documentation paperwork and uh, billing expertise uh, at one point a uh, family physician would have on average about five to seven employees behind the scenes working to be able to submit the bills and whatnot um, and a lot of them just weren't making enough money to cover their expenses in their office, so they switched to becoming hospitalists. Um, 
And then healthcare finance, uh, a lot of times the Medicare and Medicaid doesn't pay enough to cover the expenses of doing all of the documentation. And um, so then we, we uh, expect the private insurance to pay those bills and to also pay for the indigent care. Well, then what do we do? Then we tax industry to, uh, to pay for all of this. And then what does industry do? Industry looks at countries that have a national health plan. And if they relocate, then it's a huge tax that they don't have to pay. Um, so then we have less industry, less private insurance, more and more Medicare and Medicaid. And um, yeah, it's an interesting system. But, but the profits are safe. Well, oh, some, yeah. somebody, <laughs> somebody mentioned being geniuses behind the scenes. Sandy, you can you? I, I see Sandy uh, working the system and just trying to figure out all these multiple facets that you talked about the, the veterans care to Medicaid, the Medicare, and that's just on the insurance level of all the different languages that everybody speaks. But I've certainly seen just even in our own family with Lauren's needs and having. You know, two professionals, both in healthcare and mental health, still struggling to find out what are they talking about, not even being able to figure out what an explanation of benefit sheets means. I mean, we're pretty educated in, in, in healthcare and we can't figure it out. Yeah. Yeah. I've had to do things like call a provider and say, what is the CPT code for this? And if I weren't married to you, I don't think I would have known that CPT codes existed, but that's what I needed to be able to say to you know, whoever it was, you know, are you going to cover this? Because this is a CPT code that the provider is going to build this under. And so that's how we've kind of tried to navigate some of the pieces is by the more information that I'm able to learn and the more that I'm able to kind of understand the different, if you want to think about it, like language systems and different cultures of the different places. And I just think about like how I've been, that's my full-time job now, essentially that. And then doing the other side of it is like, I'm very minimally employed. And then I do a lot of volunteer work on these things. And so I have those luxuries, right? Because one, I have the education Two, I'm married to someone who also has even more education in that realm, which then also provides me with health insurance and income and all those other pieces. And so that's where I always think that if you don't have all those advantages, how are you going to do this? It's just overwhelming. And that's why I, I want to do what I do to kind of help improve systems so that families don't have to go through so much that they don't need to have this level of education and expertise to be able to make it work for their families. Thank you for listening to the Spirit Like Wellness podcast. Spirit Like Wellness is a 501c3 dedicated to health and wellness education. Learn more at spiritlikewellness.org.